for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. Using science to debunk myths from the pandemic to climate fraud. Thanks for listening to Sky Dragon Slaying on TNT Radio. Hi, welcome to another episode of Sky Dragon Slaying. We bring you the truth on science and current affairs. The mainstream would rather you didn't know. I'm John Sullivan, CEO of Principia Scientific International. As usual, joining me is Canadian astrophysicist Joe Postma. Well, for anyone who has the time and inclination to read any of those long-winded and alarmist United Nations climate reports, you'll know full well the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change mandates scientists only study one cause of climate change, and that's the human factor. Uh, But we at Principia Scientific know that Mother Nature is the largest climate factor. And, uh, you know, for 14 years, we've been showing that and uh, always, always ready to bring in new science and uh, keep the debate open because science is never settled. We uh, welcome the idea of geothermal energy. You don't have to be a genius to know that geothermal energy is real. It's it's quite an important thing. If you look outside, if you look at the uh, volcanic eruptions in Iceland right now, if you look at uh, things like um, hydro, uh, hydro events, you know, things like that, we, we look at a lot of ways of doing things with hydro. hydro. And I'll give you an example over here in the UK. We have the baths. Anybody who's been to baths, they can enjoy the nice hot spring baths. Um, it's not something that's contentious, but for the UN climate scientist, it doesn't exist. Well, we've got one expert here today uh, to help us do a deeper dive on this. That's Professor Arthur Bitterito. He's a physical geographer from George Washington University of the College of Southern Maryland. He's now retired and devoting a lot of his time to this subject. Hi, Art. Welcome to have you. Great to have you back again. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I I, I keep telling myself that uh, how long can the UN climate scientists keep ignoring you know the major discipline of geology? You know, I've been doing this job for 14, 50 years looking at climate fraud. And the one thing that keeps reappearing are is the fact they don't like geology so much. They don't like this inconvenient fact that the Earth's core, you know, is metal. It's uh, comprised of uh, nickel and iron, and it's uh, you know about five or six thousand degrees Celsius. It, it's a considerable amount of temperature down there, are and uh, you know we know if you drill down, you know, a mile or so, it, the temperature goes up to three hundred degrees. It's it's a no-brainer for people like us to say that uh, that must be playing a role. And, you know, your studies, uh, you're rattling a few cages, aren't you, Art? I am rattling a few cages, and uh, I think we may be over the target here because uh, the cage is getting rattled pretty loudly by a lot of folks. And uh, I'm happy to say that um, the audience for this continues to broaden, and I keep getting more and more criticism, which is, which again, is a sign that I'm probably over the target on this. The, uh, I call it the geothermal paradox because geothermal heat is the second largest natural source of heat to the, to the Earth, of course, the sun being the number one. Um, but it's, it's sort of misunderstood as what its role is and how it can contribute to global warming. It is actually uh, a huge heat pump to the system. What it can do, and there's a tremendous amount of literature on this, I've I've documented this, I can cite uh, easily 20, 25 studies that show that geothermal heating at the ocean bottom, and that's where most of the geothermal heat is vented on this planet, most of that heat will intensify and accelerate the global circulation of currents known as the thermohaline circulation. And when you start to intensify the thermohaline circulation, this giant heat pump starts to uh, push around a lot of heat, mostly into the Arctic, which is a dead end, so to speak, of the system. It's the northernmost terminus of the uh, of the geothermal of the thermohaline circulation, and also uh, along the equator in what's called the Western Pacific Warm Pool. And that Western Pacific Warm Pool serves as the heat for that drives the El Nino that we've just been through. So it's a um, it's an intensifier and an amplifier of El Ninos, and it also is an intensifier and an amplifier of Arctic warming. And as we know, the current warming period that we're in, meaning starting in the 
uh, mid-1990s, has really been a function of Arctic warming. We talk of the Arctic amplification, and the Arctic amplification is very, very pronounced. It shows up uh, very readily on the uh, on all the, the data sets that you look at, whether you look at the uh, Hadley data or whether you look at the uh, University of Alabama Huntsville data. It shows up as a clear and um, uncontested area where the globe where the warming has been by far the greatest and has skewed the averages so this is something that's uh, been roundly ignored and roundly criticized by a lot of folks and some of some of the uh, some of the criticisms uh, of this whole thing have been rather specious mm. the first thing you hear is well we don't really have good data on geothermal heat down at the bottom well we don't but we have a good proxy indicator and that proxy indicator is the amount of seismic activity and we know that starting in 1995, we saw a significant uptick in seismic activity on the ocean floor. We have a global seismic network. It picked this up. It detected it. And um, people say, well, but then there's really not enough heat. But as I said, 25 studies that I can cite show that intensifying geothermal heat does intensify the thermal haline flow. And from there, a lot of things follow. Yeah, a big problem here Art, is that we, we know that the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was set up uh, effectively as a political scheme to, as a Trojan horse effectively, to bring in global taxation. Um, it wasn't really about trying to find the real causes of climate change at all. And the, the very idea that they mandate that climate scientists focus on human emissions of CO2 again, people keep forgetting the fact that CO2 in the atmosphere is 0. 0.0. 4%, you know, it's it's a fraction, it's, it's minute, it, it really is not the, the climate control knob that people make it out to be. And, and yet, you know, common sense tells us Art, that, um, you know, we've had this conversation relentlessly on, on the show. Uh, Joe, Joe Postman will chip in and say this himself. You, all you have to do is just step out from in front of a cloud, the sun goes in, uh, you feel cooler. When the sun comes out from behind the cloud, you feel warmer. These are self-evident facts, Art. And again, you know, anybody who's been anywhere near, you know, there's a lot of talk the past year or two about volcanism, volcanism in Iceland and other places. It's a hot topic. I mean, excuse the pun, but it is a hot topic because people know through common sense, it, it really changes everything. You know, we've got masses of uh, emissions into the atmosphere. You know, nature, mother nature is the power driver here, not humans, isn't it? Oh, it, it clearly is. There's, uh, uh, as I said, we can talk of, when we talk of volcanic eruptions and volcanic activity, uh, we have to really break that world up into three uh, into three different realms. We can talk of submarine volcanism, subaerial volcanism, and then a, a hybrid of both. That is both submarine and subaerial. Uh, Dr. Wis uh, Yim from the uh, University of Hong Kong has done some really good work on this. He talks about these uh, oceanic blobs, these, these large areas of, of ocean that suddenly get heated to fairly high temperatures, five to seven degrees Celsius than the ambient uh, ocean temperature. And he's he's tied them to underwater volcanic activity. Now, that is one way in which we can uh, directly, it's a direct heating of the ocean surface. If we go further down, if we look at the submarine volcanism, that stirs up the bottom and causes the currents to circulate faster. And as it circulates faster, it then pumps more heat up into the Arctic. It was a fascinating study done uh, just two years ago that looked at phytoplankton populations in the Arctic. And phytoplankton don't lie. They, they have very, very narrow uh, tolerances for temperature, for, for nutrients, for oxygen, etc. And in 1995, it was documented that we saw an explosion of what are called temperate-loving phytoplankton in the Arctic. Uh, and as I said, that does not lie. That, that's a biomarker or a bioindicator of what's going on here. We also know other studies are now uh, confirming that the, the Gulf Stream has intensified since the mid-90s. So we have this perfect match of an intensification of the, the Gulf Stream uh, coupled with a bloom of phytoplankton that normally exists at lower lower latitudes. And uh, with that, we see a melting of snow and ice in the Arctic, a reduction in cloud cover in the Arctic. Uh, we see a higher uh, water vapor content in the Arctic, which is another greenhouse gas. So we're seeing a, a chain of feedbacks 
that make perfectly good sense, that the, the system is working the way it's supposed to. Uh, in this case, we have a positive feedback where more warm water is bringing and it is uh, illustrated by more phytoplankton, more warm flowing phytoplankton in the Arctic. That in turn is reducing the ice cover, uh, increasing humidity, and all these things act in concert to raise the temperature. Ergo, we have the Arctic amplification. And in fact, we know that most of the excess heat that's been brought into the Arctic for the last 25, 30 years has been brought in by ocean currents. In fact, they have a formal term for that. It's called Atlantification. That is, we know that deeper incursions of the Gulf Stream uh, and the northern extensions of that Gulf Stream into the Arctic have caused that warming. So the facts are quite clear, but yet they're also roundly ignored. And that's the frustrating part of it. Because as you've pointed out, the IPCC uh, is pretty much a, a political organization making political statements. So Art, I have you quoted as saying, uh, despite compelling theoretical, empirical, and statistical evidence, which you've just been relating to us, which is, you know, very interesting, you know, that's uh, the way you uh, recount that to us sounds like, you know, real proper science being done. As you said, um, despite uh, the evidence uh, for the hypothesis that you're discussing, you know, geothermal heating, I mean, it's obvious, of course, volcanoes and lava, we've all seen the videos probably by now, most of us have, uh, you know, these, these lava vents underneath the ocean. Um, yeah, that's going to be heat the water from underneath isn't it um so a number of prominent lukewarmists uh, continue to attack this idea with specious arguments why do you think that you get we get such pushback from the lukewarmist crowd these are the people who claim to be skeptics but they actually do nothing but go around and defend the whole basis of uh, of climate alarmism and and really the lukewarmists turn into what amounts to a fifth column it seems like to defend this uh this narrative where where, where really it seems like there is an intent to blame climate change on carbon dioxide and, and, and humans. What's, what's your take on this phenomenon? There's an interesting interplay between the, the lukewarmists and the, the alarmists, uh, if, if we want to break it up into two camps like that. The alarmists are saying, yeah, it's all driven by CO2. CO2 is the main driver here. It's the control knob, uh, even though it's, as, as you said, it's 0.04% of the uh, total, total atmospheric loading. Uh, the lukewarmists, a number of them, have sort of sided with that argument. And they go off on, a, on an interesting tangent. They say that, yeah, CO2 has caused the climate to warm a little bit. Uh, and that warming is actually a good thing, as is the CO2. Now, I can't argue that warming is an extra warming is a good thing and that CO2 is a good thing. It's, the agriculturalists love it. The Canadians love it. It, it expands the uh, the tree lines. It expands the the limits of agriculture in places like Canada and the Soviet and the old Soviet Union, Russia. So we definitely have some positive things happening from this. So they then take this and say, well, let's embrace carbon dioxide, and they then invert the argument and say we should burn more fossil fuels because it will give us more carbon dioxide, which will give us more warming, which will green the planet up even more. And if it warms it up even more, then that's that's a really good thing. So uh, it'll it'll prevent an ice age, which we know is is disastrous. More people die from cold than die from warm. So they've they've taken an interesting twist on this. So they're somewhat complicit, and they've they've got six degrees of separation, so to speak. And I don't I don't mean temperature degrees, but but six degrees in terms of arc degrees. And they're sort of playing off of that, saying we should be burning more fossil fuels and fossil fuels are actually a good thing. CO2 is a good thing and warming is a good thing. So it's an interesting take, but they never really want to solve the problem. They never want to, you hear them argue all the time, well, what's really causing the globe to warm is natural variability. But then you, you put out some drivers, some natural drivers say underwater volcanism and it, no, 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 there's not enough heat down there or your statistics are wrong or um, th there's no way that uh, that we can we can see this through because uh, it's not convective. It's it's uh, it's diffusive heat. And with those species arguments, they're able to defend their position that let's put more CO2 in the atmosphere. It's a good thing.
It seems like they really don't have an interest in doing uh, real, actual, skeptical and original science. They, they, they're they really just there to toe the line. Like you said, yeah, they so, so really they go in. I mean, alarmism is based on the whole idea that CO2 is going to heat things up. So they really just fall in that, uh, <clears throat> fall, fall right in line with that argument and thereby support the alarmist uh, position really i mean because you could take the position uh, as we have john with uh, psi and the slayers that you know there is actually no real evidence that there that co2 uh, just an inert gas in the atmosphere like all the other gases can actually cause any heating or temperature increase it's not a source or generator of, of heat or energy according to the first law of thermodynamics you need heat or work to increase temperature co2 floating around the atmosphere despite everything they claim uh, can't really actually do that. And, and you point some of these things out uh, to them. For example, uh, Roy Spencer, who's a uh, very well-known, uh, he's supposed to be a climate scientist, but he's one of these lukewarmers who does nothing but actually defend the basis of, uh, of alarmism and going in for this, you know, catastrophic, you know, he doesn't call it catastrophic. He says, uh, as, as you described, you know, oh, there's going to be a little bit, bit of warming. Well, we've been trying to demonstrate and we have been demonstrating that there really is no warming possible uh, from any of the gases in the atmosphere. You need to have a source of heat. You need to have a source of actual liberation of energy uh, to be a potential source of heat and therefore a temperature increase in the first place. So it really is a strange phenomenon uh, what these lukewarmers are are doing. Yeah, we're, we're going to take a short break. This is TNT Radio. TNT's Steve Malzberg. If a president could be prosecuted for things he did, which he believed and was advised by his lawyers what, what was was the duty of the president to do, and then after the fact, after he's president, he could be prosecuted. The example has come up today many times. Well, when Joe Biden leaves office, he could be prosecuted for not securing the border. Barack Obama um, okayed drone strikes against American citizens overseas. He could be prosecuted for murder. I mean, this opens up a whole can of worms. Um, Pandora's box, I think, is the term that uh, that Trump used. Steve Malzberg on today's News Talk TNT. Here's a bushfire fact. Bushfires can occur without warning. So if you're traveling during bushfire season, here are three simple steps to remember. One, check the fire danger rating before you go. The higher the fire danger rating, the more dangerous the conditions. It may be safer to replan your trip. Two, think about the area you're going to and what you would do if a fire started. How would you escape the area if you needed to? And where would you go? Check if there's a neighborhood safer place. Three, it's dangerous to drive through smoke or fire. If you can't find a way to avoid the fire, park in a cleared area, face the car towards the fire and turn the engine off. Then lie on the floor and cover yourself to protect yourself from radiant heat. Live bushfire ready. For more helpful tips, visit myfireplan.com.au today. We don't rock, rock. we talk. talk. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Uh, welcome back to Sky Dragon Slaying. Uh, we're, we're dealing in subjects that the mainstream finds controversial. They don't like discussing it. Uh, just before the break, we were discussing the idea that geothermal might be might be a, a, a significant factor in, in climate change. Rather than blaming humans, maybe there's something else going on that the mainstream don't want to talk about. And uh, it, it's pretty much a same old story in science where you've got the old guard want to prevent the new guard. The paradigm shift is not welcome. Anybody who's had invested their career in maintaining a position in academia, you know, 20, 30, 40 years or more, you don't like admitting new science is going to throw everything on its head. And uh, I remember when I first learned about um, plate tectonics back in 1912 was when the theory was first proposed. Back then, Alfred Wegener came up with the idea. It was very controversial. Nobody wanted to talk about the role of continental drift. Back then, you know, the guy was vilified. He had a hell of a time. And, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things. Ah, Bitterito, you're proposing something that is rocking the boat. Mainstream scientists don't like what you're saying. And, uh, 
We mentioned Roy Spencer. Roy Spencer, you know, well-known in the climate science community. He's an um, ex-NASA guy, and uh, he's known for being a lukewarmist. And uh, you and he, you don't really see eye to eye, do you? No, we really don't. And uh, I, I've had a little bit of a history with Roy. I, I first met him at a Heartland conference uh, back in 2014. So we're talking almost 10 years ago. And I, uh, he was at a reception there. And I went up to him and I says, hey, I do great work. I, I use your temperature data. He's uh, UAH, University of Alabama at Huntsville. And his uh, uh, microwave sensing unit puts out the temperature data that I work with. And I said, good work here. I said, have you ever considered the role that geothermal might play in all of this? And he just looked at me and says, there's just not enough heat down there. No, there, there's not enough heat down there. I says, well, the oceanographic folks say a little bit differently, that there is enough heat out there to energize the thermal haline circulation. No, no, there's just not enough heat down there. I says, well, I found a pretty high correlation between um, the amount of seismic activity on the ocean floor and the global temperatures. In fact, I've matched it up with your temperature curve. And he says, yeah, he says, uh, and I can show you that the number of alien sightings goes up as the population grows. So correlation isn't causation. Uh, correlation isn't causation. So I said, yeah, I've heard that old trope before. I says, but if you find a high correlation, then a good researcher sits down and says, okay, there's obviously some con confounding variable that we have to deal with here. In your case, the confounding variable is that, yes, we have more UFO sightings because there are more people to sight them. There are more eyeballs in the sky. So obviously, that's your confounding variable is that more people are seeing these things. So that's what's going on here. You've, you've kind of, what do they call it in philosophy, the, the, the fallacy of the consequent. I, I says, you, you, can't, you can't make that argument. It's a, it's a straw man argument. Well, he seemed rather put off by me and, and wished me good luck and sort of, you know, abruptly walked away from me. And to this day, um, he won't let me post anything on his blog. He won't respond to me. I've been blocked from his email from what I can best tell. And he just posted a blog um, uh, entry on his website that says that geothermal can't be driving it. And he comes up with some some numbers, I don't know where they got them from, as to how much heat is actually coming up from the ocean floor. My feeling on this is you really don't know. We, we really have very, very poor data from down there. And um, uh, he posts a graph that I found rather shocking. It's the Argo data. Now, the Argo is the, gets three-dimensional temperature readings on the ocean. It's a, it's a network of floating buoys that uh, takes temperature readings down to about 2,000 meters. That's as far down as they go. Now, the average geothermal heat release on the ocean floor is 2,100 meters, so it's a little bit below their threshold. But we have geothermal heat being emitted from as low as 6,000 meters. So he's missing half the data, but he's showing that, well, see, uh, we're showing heating of the bottom water of the lower, uh, lower depths over here. It's gotta be coming from the surface. But then if you look carefully at the graph, you see that there is, uh, for certain periods of time, there's cooler water at the top and then warmer water beneath that. And between the two, there's the thermocline, which is the dividing line between warm and cold water vertically in the ocean. And it sits at about 100 meters. And sure enough, the thermocline shows up very, very nicely on this, on this Argo data. So my question to him is this, and I post, but he won't post it is how can cooler water from the surface warm the water beneath the thermocline? Mm. It doesn't work that way. It has to be being warmed from below and moving up towards the top. And then when it hits the thermocline, it can be either stopped or it can go higher, just like an accumulus cloud. They can either shear off at the top or they can break through the, the tropopause and move up into the stratosphere. So he has some cases where it does break up into the, into the, uh, the surface layers, but other layers where it stays down below, other times where it stays below the thermocline. So that to me screams that the, the heat's coming from below, it's not coming from above. And as I said, I, I questioned him on this and he, he, he wouldn't post it. It never posted on his blog site. 
Well, John, we know that uh, in dealing with these lukewarmists that they really do seem to be uh, gatekeepers and they, they really do seem yeah. that they are doing it on purpose. They are purposefully gatekeeping and they purposefully want to maintain fundamentally the greenhouse narrative, which is, you know, the whole basis of the climate change uh, alarmism thing. You know, our own experience, my own personal experience with Roy Spencer is, uh, is just in, in presenting a new way to do an energy budget. So the traditional way uh, to pour perform an energy budget for the earth, for the whole earth. This is, you know, an energy budget dealing with, you know, it's not with uh, geothermal, it's just with how the sun interacts with the earth. So the sunlight energy being absorbed by the earth and then the earth emitting it. That's just an energy budget. The, the traditional way to do that, to draw that is just with a flat line for the earth because you're doing uh, uh, just averages, right? So you just use a flat line for the earth and say, okay, here's the sun coming in and here's how much energy better uh, should come out given that much solar input and you just work out the numbers so i thought well what would happen mathematically if you just use instead of a flat line for the earth draw the earth as a circle so that it can represent a sphere so that changes the math a little bit changes the numbers a little bit right and uh, and you get some different results you get the same energy out but now uh, one of the really different uh, important differences is that the solar input now is really strong and you can see when you use a spherical energy budget a spherical earth energy energy budget the numbers work out that it shows that the sun can directly create the climate the sun can directly create cumulonimbus clouds uh, you know the basic climatological features we're all familiar with you know as a first order approximation what do you want to be able to an energy an energy budget to be able to show you want to be able to show that the sun creates a climate you know having day and night is a great thing to show to first first order that's a pretty fundamental first order property of the of the earth is that it has day and night and the sun creates a climate and so you can't actually show that on a flat earth model right so I said, hey, let's just use this spherical Earth model and see what difference it makes. And, and you know, one of the differences it makes is that it radically um, diminishes or even uh, discards the need to hypothesize uh, this greenhouse effect back radiation warming from the atmosphere. Look, it's just doing an energy budget with a spherical Earth. Not a big deal, right? And Roy Spencer got real upset about that. He says no one in the field would ever do this. He says this the flat earth approach is the standard approach that everyone does. No one disputes that this is the correct way to do it. And uh, therefore, your your idea of doing it on a sphere is wrong. And I'm like, okay, but we can do it on a sphere, can't we? Like, is there something fundamentally wrong with doing an energy, energy budget on a spherical Earth? There's nothing wrong with doing that. Like, can I not do that? And yeah, you get this strange response from lukewarmists and other people and then they just say no you're not allowed to do that well why why not do that <laughs> so it's just a very strange level of uh, i don't know what it is coordination or just uh, inability the lack of interest in uh and in just doing some real mm -hmm. science like th this is not progressing as a, as a real scientific field yeah let me interject to back up what art's saying about the it's self-evident that heat rises art is making a very you know, trivial point, but essential point: heat rises from the, from the depths of the ocean, and there's no way that uh, it's in reverse. And um, I would like to draw attention to an article written by Roy Roy Pen uh, Spencer back in 2010, uh, quite well known in the um, you know in the climate science community because it caused quite a controversy at the time. And, and that article was called "Yes, Virginia, Cooler Objects Can Make Warmer Objects Even Warmer Still." Uh, and he genuinely believes he, he's he, the way he frames thermodynamics. It's um, a complete bastardization of the of the science. He, he he argues that if you put a block of ice, in effect, you put a block of ice against a, a warmer object, that block of ice being there will make that warmer object even warmer. Now that defies everything known in applied science, and um, it kind it kind of typifies the the mentality of academics who have had no real training in thermodynamics, and it's something that our colleague. Joe Olson, who's a qualified engineer and who's handled these kind of issues in the real world for, you know, for many decades, can argue to the cows come home. But the trouble is, Art, the academics, um, you know, they do like to argue with their numbers and their simplistic formulas. And as Joe's saying, the, the flat earth model truly is, you know, a flat earthing way of look at looking at things. And you are going against the grain. And uh, again, you're like us. We're open minded. We don't like to close down debate but it seems as if lukewarmers and alarmists they've they've come to the conclusion already they know what the cause is and there's no further debate so go away you're you're rocking the boat and we don't want to talk to you and that is not how science is done is it no you're absolutely right and and, and uh in the meantime it's like uh, keep my reputation i want to keep my job and keep the funding coming in 
Uh, that, that's really what it's, what it's all attached to. Um, Roy, uh, uh, Roy has actually come out and he wrote a book talking about the role of cloud cover in climate and saying that this is a, uh, a natural driver of, of climate variability, not so much climate change, but climate variability. And the interesting part about all this is, okay, cloud cover does change. We know that since the mid-90s, cloud cover has decreased uh, uh, on the planet. And that can allow more energy to come in mm -hmm. and cause things to warm up. But then the, you always come back to the question is, what has changed the cloud cover? Why has the cloud cover changed? And crickets, uh, I don't know, it, it changed. Well, something has to be driving that. So uh, in my model, what's happening is that if you start to warm the sea surface temperatures, um, primarily in the Arctic and in the Western Pacific, then what happens is that the globe will uh, the global temperature will increase, and with an increase in global temperatures, you increase the uh, capacity of the atmosphere to hold water vapor. Mm -hmm. What happens is more water vapor in the atmosphere, yes, less cloud cover, also yes, because now it can hold more water vapor, which means you're going to have fewer clouds. So it, it's it's a seeming paradox in that respect, mm -hmm. and the cloud cover data is very clear on this from satellites. The water vapor data is very clear. Uh, Joe Bastardi shared with me the global uh, humidity data, and it has gone up lockstep with the sea surface temperatures, which has gone up lockstep with the amount of seismic activity uh, on the ocean floor. You can't ignore all that. You, do, you just can't ignore that. And in fact, um, uh, a group that Roy is affiliated with, the, the CO2 Coalition, have you ever checked out their website? They're an interesting group. Um, the executive director is a guy named Gregory Wrightstone. Yeah, we had him on a few months ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. He, um, uh, Wrightstone and I have had some uh, rather, um, shall we say, spirited email debates. And he doesn't like what I've done. He doesn't like the data sets that I've used, that the data catalogs that I used to, uh, to catalog the increasing seismic activity. So I said, fine, I'll use one that no one can dispute because it's what they call a complete catalog. It captures all the events. There's no sampling bias or sampling error. The sampling error is at a, at a, at a bare minimum. And I came up with the exact same result. And he kept saying to me, oh, that's not what my experts are telling me. I said, what are your experts telling you? You can't use this database. I said, but I, I verified this with a separate database. Well, that sounds compelling, but my experts tell me, I, I don't care what your experts tell you. This is, this is put out by, the, uh, by Columbia University. It's a well-regarded database, and you, you can't ignore this. So I keep getting the same results with ridiculously high um, correlation coefficients and also ridiculously low probabilities that this whole thing is just occurring by chance. And the whole thing is just, is just remarkably... Um, frustrating in the sense that I I feel like a, a dog is chasing his tail. Nobody will listen. They won't listen. By the way, I understand the CO2 Coalition is uh, funded in part by coal companies, and I can't think of a better ad for coal than, gee, put more CO2 in the atmosphere, it's good for the atmosphere. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's what's going on here, but they they are apparently one of the donors, uh, donors to the uh, CO2 Coalition, and I, it just makes you wonder. Uh, I mean, it, it really does. I wonder how much and you actually get for such donations. Do you have any idea? I have. I have. I looked at that data a long time ago. It's, it's it, tens of thousands of dollars. The CO two coalition appears to be fairly well funded. I, I'm familiar with where their offices are. It's right across the river. It's right outside of Georgetown. They they're in a high rent district, so obviously they're doing well. They have a full time staff. They're They've got a, a large uh, presence. They've got a large footprint in the, in the, in the public eye. And um, uh, they do have a, a reasonably sized full-time staff there. And they have a lot of affiliates that work with them. Um, I don't mean to disparage them, but I, I do disagree with them. And uh, they have been uh, somewhat very critical individually, at Wright, Stone, and Spencer, and collectively, uh, against my stuff. In fact, Spencer just came out recently on another podcast a couple of weeks ago saying that uh, he doesn't even think that solar variability is 
uh, to be looked at in this. It's the, the variability in the uh, solar intensity, the what's called the TSI or the total solar irradiance is too small. It's less than 1%. He says that that is not going to move the needle at all. So he's at odds with with solar people uh, such as Willie Soon and um, Nir Shaviv. So he's at odds with that uh, uh, line of research. So at some point, it's like, okay, what are you doing? You're sitting here throwing a blanket um, criticism of all these different natural drivers, but you're coming up with nothing yourself. I think I'd just like to emphasize the fact that, just give a broad picture here, that uh, so-called greenhouse gas theory has something like 60 to 70 uh, different variants, and depending on who you are and their own pet theory, their own pet uh, derivatives. Uh, I'll give you an example. That, that You mentioned uh, Willie Soon. Willie Soon's great. We I, I love his work. Um, and uh, Go back to Roy Spencer. Roy Spencer and Richard Lindzen, I'll throw in the name Richard Lindzen, uh, again, well, when I first came into the climate debate 15 years ago, they were like uh, the demigods, you know, the goats. Uh -huh. You listen to Lindzen, you listen to Spencer. Um, right. But they actually have competing theories about the greenhouse gas theory. One says it's yeah. top-down heating, the other one says it's bottom-up heating. You know, yeah. these are fundamental contradictions, and it kind of proves the point here, Art, that the science is never settled. It's it's not something that you can make, uh, you can be bombastic about and, and make sweeping statements. And the whole point of science, we say, is you know, be be humble. Be skeptical of everything, including yourself. Um, this is how changes occur. This is how the whole thing moves forward. And your um, very plausible uh, reasoning, you know, it, it, it's compelling to us because, again, we're open-minded. We don't have a dog in this fight. We're not, um, you know, we're not indentured. You know, we're not academics in, in universities where 97% of climate scientists agree with whoever's funding them. I think that's the issue is to follow the money, Um We'll, we'll, cover, we'll get back into this point in a minute, Art. We'll just go for another short break. It's TNT Radio. Deweaponizing weather with reality and perspective. I really don't understand how this trial between Michael Mann and Mark Stein is continuing. And I don't know if Dr. Mann wanted to put his hockey stick on trial. There are so many holes in his argument. It is hard to believe. I don't even understand how people could have let that out without questioning it. And I've talked about this before. One of the biggest problems I have is he won't let anyone look at his data, at least no one that is skeptical of his data. And that should raise red flags. And I've talked about this many, many times. You can go and look at what the global temperature does. When it's warm in the eastern and central part of the United States and warm across Europe, usually the global temperature is elevated. Now, when it's cold in those areas, believe it or not, the global temperature is actually colder. The problem with this whole hockey stick and the recreation of temperatures from pine cones is the areas he looks at and draws his ideas from are usually cold when the earth is warm. So he would not be able to detect that. He would not know that because he's not a meteorologist. If he was a meteorologist, would he know it? Of course he'd know it because we talk about this all the time. They're called teleconnections. So if I were in there talking about this, I'd be asking, where is your meteorology background and are you aware of this going on? But in any case, this whole hockey stick idea of temperature recreation looks to be more of a hokey stick to a lot of us out there. And the first red flag is you wouldn't let anyone look at your data. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog meteorologist Joe Bustardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. Whatever happens to good, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot and it's become an automatic answer to so much. Hey, how's things? Good. Your mom, your weekend? Good, good. Is good even that good anymore? At the Salvos, we believe good deserves better. Let's reclaim its true meaning. To us, good has always been about making a difference, and good never picks or chooses who it helps. Isn't it time we all remember what good really means? Using science to debunk myths. From the pandemic to climate fraud. Thanks for listening to Sky Dragon Slaying on TNT Radio. Hi, welcome back. It's been an interesting week uh, in the court system in Washington, D.C. Uh, climate fraudster, I call him a climate fraudster, Dr. Michael Mann. He was victorious. He defeated Mark Steen um, in the libel case that uh, dragged on for 12 years. Um, 
The, the headline news in the liberal media, the far left, is that um, you know Michael Mann won a million dollar victory uh, in, in, in punitive damages. The, the, the story is not really the, the real story, though. The story is the jury actually awarded Mann one dollar in terms of compensatory damages. That was the limit, the amount of money they thought it actually damaged him. Such is the attack on free speech, simply for accusing a climate scientist, you know, in all in free speech of saying you're not honest with the data. Um, this is the problem with scientists. Scientists are not the goody goodies. They're not the best people in the world. Like anybody, they're prone to corruption. They're prone to narcissism. You know, the egos are very large. And uh, if, you, if you go after somebody like that, like Michael Mann, who's built a career, very successful, very well paid, for the awards, you know, they don't like being criticised. And um, we're lucky to have with us Professor Arthur Vitorito. He's come up with a, a really good idea, really new, the new theory on, on geothermal energy. And uh, art is getting pushback. Art is finding that the establishment in, in science don't like to hear what he's saying. They, we heard before the break that uh, Roy Spencer, very respected uh, scientist in the climate skeptic community, um, well-known lukewarmist, he doesn't like it because, again, it kind of rattles his cage. It's something that's uncomfortable for him. Art, you know, it's never-ending. Science is full of people who are driven by egos. They're not driven by uh, good intentions. Um do you find this is going to carry on with you? Or do, you do you feel you're going to actually have a breakthrough sometime? I mean, we're doing our best to help you. I, I think, as you said, you're over the target. It, it, things are changing, aren't they? They really are. It's uh, It's been an uphill fight. And it, it's, in some respects, it's, got, it's been kind of frustrating. Uh, in other respects, it's been kind of challenging. In, and it has sort of invigorated me and has pushed me to do even more. So that's that's the good part of it. Uh, to get back to the uh, Alfred Wegner story, I, he was pilloried for his theory of continental drift. He never got a teaching position after that. Nobody published his stuff. He was roundly criticized by the geological community. And it, it took about uh, 30 or 40 years before they finally came around to this. So this happens in science all the time. Stephen Jay Gould, I think, a uh, the late Stephen Jay Gould, a famous paleontologist, uh, aptly said, that academia is a viper's pit, and it really is. Uh, there are um, there are all sorts of issues with um, big egos, big funding, um, and big reputations. And it almost drove me out of academia for a while. I took a job as an analyst for a couple of years because I, I really got tired of the uh, of the game there. And um, interestingly, I was I was told by a, a former chairman of mine. I actually published an article that said. Uh, it looks like some of what we're attributing, some of the global climate change we're attributing to CO2 might in fact be caused by urban heat island contamination of the data. I was roundly criticized for that and was told that uh, this kind of research wasn't appreciated and that I shouldn't publish this stuff anymore. It was just, it was, it was absolutely remarkable. I was mind, mind blown from that whole thing. But yeah, academia is a, it, it can be a very, very ugly place. And what? Uh, people can can really get damaged um, in, in a lot and of they hide They hide behind this process that they call peer review. There is no actual legal um, accountability in science, is there, in, in academia, is there, John and Artem? They have this system that they hide behind called peer review, and if you're not getting peer-reviewed articles, uh, you know, then it's then it's worthless. You know, so, for example, when I draw an energy budget, just drawing an energy budget on a spherical Earth, uh, they say, well, is that peer reviewed? And I said, well, you know, I actually submitted that for peer review. And guess what peer review said? Peer review said that the prevailing literature is to do it on a flat line earth. And so they're going to stick with that instead. It's like, well, why why not just do it on a sphere and see what makes a difference? So I wrote in my first book, or maybe it was my third book, actually, I said, uh, what is peer review predicated upon? What is the whole process of peer review predicated upon in science? It's predicated upon the good nature of humanity. So the good nature of human competition, the good nature of human cooperation, the good nature of human, uh, you know, um, wishing to work together. In other words, there's no less secure system in the universe. Like if you wanted to create a system that could be completely hijacked and completely full of lies, uh, you'd create a peer review system where people just review each other's work who work in the same field with you. 
I mean, what, what do you think that's going to get you? It's not going to get you anything except defense of the narrative, which brings you your funding. That's all that peer review does is maintain their narrative to get you your funding. That's all it is. It's, it's worthless as a review process for generating actual science. No, that's, uh, that is very well said. In fact, uh, I call it steer review. It's not peer review. Steer review and that the, these editorial boards act as steering committees and they steer research into certain silos or certain ways of thinking and throw everything out. My first paper I published on this, nine journals rejected it. Half of them wouldn't even read it. And it's, it's a highly corrupted process. It's easy to corrupt. Other people call it power review. And it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really terrible what's, what's going on with this. And um, so we, we have to publish outside of the mainstream and publish in journals that are not as well known or journals that that are you know pay to play and it's um it's a very frustrating process and what they will do many times is they'll criticize you say oh you know you're just a skeptic and mm -hmm. you haven't published in any of the peer-reviewed journals or none of the you know none of the top tier journals and it's like yeah you folks have shut me out and as they say you can get a 97 percent consensus on this when the skeptics or the the people who oppose all this have all been censored and that's what they're doing. They're very, very good at this. Um, they know how to play the game. They know how to protect their funding. They know how to protect their reputations. They know how to protect their positions. It's it's terrible stuff. Yeah. I want to just make the point that, I mean, I mentioned it on a previous episode where we're talking about the corruption of the peer review process. Let's talk about the corruption of science publishing you know, per se. Um, not many people know this, but um, back in the 1950s, uh, the guy called Robert Maxwell, he's the father of Ghislaine Maxwell, who linked to the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. Well, Robert Maxwell was a newspaper tycoon linked with Mossad, just like Epstein linked with Mossad. And um, he got involved in science publishing because science publishing is actually very lucrative. And uh, Maxwell, um, he set up Pergamon Press, which is now um, taken over by Elsevier Press. And, uh, you know, it's a billion dollar industry. And again, it's, um, you know, self-feeding, self-licking ice cream, isn't it? You know that uh, uh, apparently in 2018, the profit margins are 38% for, for Elsevier. Um, Robert Maxwell, fraudster, alleged spy. Um, we, we've made the point, we're conspiracy theorists, Joe Postman, we like to say that everything's connected, and uh, I do feel that the powers that be, they have the finger in the pie. Um, what you're saying, Art, with your theory, again, it's going to diminish the, the impact of the CO2 climate control knob narrative. Um, we've been saying it for, for many years now, and uh, I, I'll say it again, 97% of climate scientists agree with whoever's funding them. Uh, we don't get funded. Uh, Principia Scientific is completely uh, impartial. We're a non-profit. Uh, we're, we're actually funded by donors who are independent. Grassroots, we take donations, very small donations, and uh, that's how we came across your work, Art, and we're very happy to keep publishing you because... This is the kind of work that uh, needs to be recognized. And uh, it, it's a war, isn't it? It's a war of ideas. It, it really is. And uh, and interestingly, I uh, uh, at the last college I taught at the College of Southern Maryland, I was asked to to look at salary issues amongst the faculty. And I, I stumbled upon some very interesting things. And coupled with some budget issues that I worked at at George Washington University, I found out the reason that college costs are through the roof First of all, it's because of administrative costs. Uh, faculty hadn't gotten a raise at my college for five years, but the uh, administrative load had doubled. They doubled the number of administrators. But also, the price of these scientific journals is astronomical. If you want to get a one-year uh, subscription to Climatic Change, I think it's $2,000. That's the institutional rate. Uh, extremely, as, as you pointed out, uh, it's extremely lucrative. Scientific publishing, both popular and um, uh, the the professional or academic work is very very expensive stuff, and these these libraries are willing to pay it because then the government will just kick back more money, more grants, more scholarships, and it the, the wheel never stops. So part of the national debt is attributed to science publishing in libraries because the the scientific journals cost a fortune. They are very. But also very costs between it also costs between one thousand to two thousand dollars typically just to publish in a journal. Just to have a, a single yes. paper published. Do you need to pay that? 
Yes, exactly. And, and I'll never forget my, my first uh, foray into the National Science Foundation. Me and a colleague uh, put together a proposal to look at droughts in the northeastern United States. I had done some work on it in my master's thesis. He had done some work on his doctoral thesis. And we put together a, what I thought was a really excellent proposal. National Science Foundation looked at this and they grade them. They give you a score on your proposal. And they, it goes from a scale of zero to 100. Our proposal was scored at a 92, uh, which is which is very top tier. But we were told we're not going to fund you because we don't know you. Mm, and terrible. This, uh, totally disheartening. And they said, that's it. I'm, I'm never going to uh, try to get NSF funding ever again. And here's another interesting part of this. I, I being slow to learn, I went back and put another proposal um, and didn't get that uh, funded either. But when I went to the... Um, the development office at the at the uh, university, they said, okay, this is really great. You're asking for, I think it was about $120,000. Um, we're not going to mark that up. I said, what do you mean mark that up? And they says, well, now, now your proposal is for nearly $200,000. I said, why? Well, overhead. They charged 52% overhead. I said, what's the overhead for? Well, clerical help, you know, like, you know, like administrative assistance and Xerox machines. I said, I've never done that much Xeroxing in my whole life. I said, but it was, it was ridiculous to see how the price got jacked up right there uh, before it even went out. No, and that's common. When I was working at the University of Calgary, contracting to the Canadian Space Agency, yeah, it was 50%. If we had an estimated cost of you know salary and supplies, it was going to be 100000 Canadian dollars. Well, we had to go and get 200000 from the Canadian Space Agency because the department, the university just takes it. And then, yeah, you ask, well, where is it going to? Overhead. Well, for, for what? For the secretary that is already hired and doesn't actually do anything for you anymore? You know, that used to be that the secretaries would actually go scan something for you if, if you need it, but they don't do that anymore. They they just yeah. answer the phone. It's not clear what they do. Yeah, there's there's nothing. So they're just stealing money. It's all a system of just sure. uh, just theft, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And uh, I, th I think we, we learned that lesson the hard way, though, where, where, where lives were lost and lives were seriously damaged with the COVID uh uh, epidemic, how 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 bad the science got botched on that, and and how we we paid a lot of money for very poor science and and non vaccines that didn't work, but that's a whole different ball of wax. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Art, uh, we're coming to the last minute, and I just want to get across, you know, the, where people can find your work. Give us some, um, give us some places we can go to to, to view your work. Well, um, you folks have been very, very generous and very kind to publish some of my work. You, you, uh, one of your articles actually looks at all the things I've, I've uh, published with you, and I thank you for that. Um, there, are, I've also done some podcasts with uh, uh, Tom Nelson. Are you familiar with Tom's work? Yep, Tom does good. Yeah, work. we've had him on. Yep. Yep. Tom. Tom does some interesting work. I've, I've done uh, a couple of podcasts with him. Um, I, I did a. Uh, a solitary alone presentation with him back in November. And then we did a group presentation looking at geothermal back in December. So you go to his, his website uh, that those have gotten quite a few hits. Uh, there's also the, uh, if, if you just Google me at Vitorito Seismic, uh, a number of my publications will pop up. I've also published some things with the Heartland Institute. Uh, some of them have been taken off. Uh, the platform, interestingly, all of a sudden, without explanation, they're now gone. But there are other things that I have published with Heartland that that uh, you can you can tap into. But, but yeah, Google search Vitorito Seismic, and a number of things pop up. Thank you, Art. It's uh, such a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, keep up the good work. We're, we're championing here on TNT TNT Radio people like yourself who um, are trying to bring new new innovations and new ideas into science. So keep you know keep going, and we we support you. Thank you for joining us on Sky Dragon Slaying, Professor Arthur Vitorito. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>